Turn to 1 John chapter 5, and uh, we come. I was a little sad this week because uh, I'm finishing 1 John. I mean, it's a good thing. You always feel a sense of accomplishment. We'll go from one book to another. 1 John, we'll head into the book of James here next. Uh, but I just feel as though, boy, I'm... I'm saying goodbye, at least momentarily, to a familiar friend. I can't wait to meet the Apostle John in heaven. And I've just loved this book and cherish it, but we, we close it out today. Let me read for you from the ESV, and we'll look at those last three verses today. It says, I write these things to you, and I'm in 513, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And then this conclusion, somewhat abrupt, somewhat different. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Well, here we come to the final message in part four of the certainty of our faith. Are, was there notes in the bulletin today? Oh, no notes in there? There was? They're in the back? Um, gosh, it'd be great if, if somebody wanted to go grab those. Maybe Dave Lehrman. Thank you, Jeremy. I think there's some notes in the back. If it just helps you kind of track where we are, because I'm in the middle of, of an argument, that might be of some help to you. But we've, we're looking at the certainty. In fact, here the men come. Thanks, guys. Just raise your hand if you want one of these. Thank you, Jeff. Just put it up. It might help you track with us. I'm not doing PowerPoint today. Thank you for just clarifying that. Thank you, Jeff. And keep your hands up as they go back. On the back of that little handout is a gift card to Starbucks. You, no, I'm just kidding. Um, um, but, but the certainty of our faith. I mean, that word certain, if you just looked at the dictionary definition of that, if, if something is certain, it is free from doubts free from reservation. It's certain. The the word means confident. It means sure. And that's what John wants us to be. He wants us to be destined is the idea behind the word, that it's sure to happen. In fact, you could even say that the word certain means inevitable and bound to come and established as true is the thought, as sure If something is certain, it is unquestionable and it is indisputable. That is certain. In fact, if you just looked at the opposite, the word uncertain means vague. And it's the ideal of going to change probably at some time soon. But John wrote this epistle that we would be certain about the truth of God, certain about the truth of Christ, certain about the truth of salvation. I've said the last couple of weeks that 39 different times John says the phrase, we know, in this epistle. He wants you to be certain about God, your faith, and the person of Christ. Now, in this last paragraph from 13 to 21, seven different times, he says the word we know. In fact, look in your Bible as we glance into this closing section. You could see it there in verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God. Verse 19, we know that we are from God. Verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come. And so we've wrapped this section up 
that John is providing five certainties designed here to build us up in the faith and to give assurance to your souls. That's what he's trying to do. He's wanting to build you, which is our goal at Grace Church of the Valley on the Lord's Day. We're wanting to build you up. We're wanting to build the people of God. We'll do that at Summerfest on Wednesday, but Wednesday becomes an outreach as well to the community. But our design here is to build you up and to give assurance, and this is what John does. In fact, in an uncertain world, Scripture wants us to be certain about our faith and to face the future without fear. So as we close this wonderful epistle, I want to study the final two certainties of our faith, and I hope that they will be an encouragement to you this morning. We've looked at the first three. The first was the certainty of our assurance of eternal life. He says there as the linchpin of the whole epistle that I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. Uh, John wrote with that in mind. He wants you to be certain about your assurance of eternal life. He wrote this whole epistle and set up a series of tests that you would know that, and we've preached that. Secondly, he wants you to be certain about our approach to God in prayer, that as you're a believer, he says in 14 down through 17, this is the confidence that we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And so he goes down and explains that, and we preach through that. He wants us not only to have assurance of eternal life, he wants us to have a bold approach to God in prayer because we're in Christ. And then we left off a couple of weeks ago about our certainty of our advantage over sin and Satan. Pick up that text with me in verse 18. John says there, we know... Here's our advantage, verse 18, that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. And so we have, as believers, an advantage over sin. And, uh, and we preach through that, and he's repeating his theme there. I don't want to repeat that to you. Because we've been born again, born again and born of God, we do not keep in a pattern and a practice of sinning. But, but then we left off at that phrase. Look at it in verse 18 with your eyes. It says, but he who is born of God, here's the phrase, protects him. Watch that. And then it says, and the evil one does not touch him. And we begin to ask that question, how does God and Christ protect us? Why does the evil one not touch us? And on what basis are we secure? And we begin and launch that two weeks ago. We said, number one, we're secure because of the promises of God. Now, you remember when we said in verse 18 there, look at it. It's a little bit of a pithy statement. It just says, he who is born of God protects him. And remember, we asked the question there, who's protecting who? Is, is he talking about the believer who's been born of God and the believer who's been born of God protects himself? and keeps himself. We said it could be that, but we said much more likely that he who is born of God is the one who protects him, looking back to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he who was the only begotten of God, we'll look at there again, he was born of God, speaking of Christ, protects him. And we said that we are kept here in our advantage over sin and our advantage over Satan by Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the one who's protecting us. And so we begin to list those, that protection plan that we had. We said we are built and protected by the promises of God, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. We said, secondly, that we are protected by the prayers of Christ, that right now he is interceding on behalf of believers, and that because of his prayers, even now, if you will, in the throne room of the Trinity, are offered up for us, and he's interceding for us as is the Holy Spirit. And we looked at John 17 in his high priestly prayer. And then we said that thirdly there, we're kept by the promises of Christ that he himself said that no one will ever snatch you out of my what? 
All those things are our protection. And, and then I left off, and we didn't get to this. We're, we're protected by the propitiation of Christ. The propitiation of Christ, which is just his death. In other words, his death on your behalf is a means that he uses to keep you, to protect you, to give you assurance of your salvation. Look back just a few books to the book of Hebrews for a second, okay? And I'm just illustrating here the death of Jesus Christ. In other words, he keeps us because he died for us. Have you ever seen this text in Hebrews 9, 12, where it says there, speaking of the redemption through the blood of Christ. In fact, you could back up to Hebrews 9.11. It says that when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, even though the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, look what he did. Verse 12, 9.12. He entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, and here's the phrase, securing, thus securing, an eternal redemption. In other words, as he died, verse 12 says that he secured an eternal redemption. In other words, his death on the cross is our certainty in the advantage over sin and over Satan. You say, you mean what by that, Scott? That sin itself could never snatch you out of his hand. But in his death and in his propitiation for us, it makes your salvation eternally secure. Listen, Grace Church of the Valley, if Christ died for your sins, your sins can never be punished again. If he took your sins on the cross, then you could never, therefore, be punished again. This is what we call in Reformed theology effectual redemption. Based on his death on the cross, you are kept by him. So what John is saying here is, listen, you've got an advantage over sin because, number one, sin no longer is master over you. And number two, and I boldly say it, you have advantage over the evil one why? Because you are kept and protected by the promises of God, the promises of Christ, the prayers of Christ, and here in the death of Christ. Look over just for a moment in Romans chapter 8. And I'm just looking here just briefly with you, but in Romans chapter 8, and certainly you are familiar with this text in Romans 8. And it once again illustrates biblically that his death gives us advantage over Sin and here's Satan. You remember in Romans chapter 8 and verse 31, but I just highlight this for you. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then what? Who can be against us? He, speaking of God, who did not spare his own son, he died, but gave him up for all of us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And here it is. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is he who, what? Died. He already died for you. Listen, you are kept by Christ through his death that he stepped in your place to take your wrath and let you go free. And so that's why as he goes on in that argument there, as you look down, who shall separate us, verse 35, or even back to 34, he is he who died, more than that, who, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, there's his prayers, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Down to verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, his death is a means of your protection over the evil one. I mean, I don't know. Some of you might even, if you, if you watch too much of that talk news, that could be bad, huh? 
mean, you start looking at politically what these people are talking about and what some would see as the hypocrisy and forms of government, and you start looking down the future, and then you start seeing the credit card and the ATM cards, and I mean, I, I'll leave for New Zealand in about eight days, and uh, if I get over there, I'll pop my credit card, and in about two seconds, it will say, welcome, Scott Artavanis. Put in your pen. I mean, it's just universal. It's all over. You look towards where our country and our society is going, and some of you may even fear the book of Revelation, but make no mistake about it. We've got an advantage. We have a certainty in our faith. I am not concerned. As I go to the future, I don't know what the future holds, but I do know who holds my future, right? And and, and as a believer, we have already, if you will, been born of God. So sin no longer masters us. We have to fight it. Yes, we understand that. But listen, I'm not concerned. And I'm afraid in some churches, they give so much credit to the person of Satan that it's almost as though some believers live in fear of that. Listen, the one in you is greater than the one in the world, right? And we have an advantage. And here, at least in this point, um, If Christ died for your sins, and he did, then you could never be punished again. So let me say this. Satan cannot touch what's nearest and dearest to your heart. Period. With boldness, I declare that. This is a certainty. And and what's nearest and dearest to your heart, let me be clear, is not your health, is not your material stuff, but it's your relationship with God that is secure. Amen? He cannot touch that if you're in Christ. He's already been defeated, if you will. Oh, yes, he may attack you. I want to be clear. He may tempt you. He probably is accusing you, but he could never cause you to fall so as to never recover and lose the salvation you once had. Listen, if you're in Christ, you've got certainty here, okay? But I would tell you, in all honesty, that I know of believers who have been sifted like wheat. Remember when Jesus came to Peter and he said, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But Jesus said, I have what? Prayed for you. I know believers who have been sifted like wheat to the degree at times they have despaired of life itself and believe sometimes that they are cursed forever. But listen, ultimately, 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 he can never take away your faith or remove you from God's hand. And so listen, you are secure in that. God can let, yes, Satan come at Job and know that Job's faith will not fail. See, Satan, on the one hand, sought to destroy Job, but he could not because God's care had surrounded him. And Satan did afflict Job, but Job did not curse God. In fact, you remember in Job 1.21, Naked have I come from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be, what? The name of the Lord. So even though he came after him, he couldn't touch him. And so the evil one, as we just saw back in 1 John in 1.18, who holds the world in his lap, cannot touch the children of God. And the devil does not touch the believer because the sun keeps him. And because the sun keeps you, you will never continue in sin. You have the advantage over sin and the advantage over Satan. And so I'll say it again. He may tempt you. He may persecute you. But he, let me say it another way. He cannot possess you. Some people get like sideways. They get afraid like, like, like he can enter into someone. Listen, he can't enter into a believe you. He may, for the sake of words, oppress you, but he can never possess a believer. He may seek to take your joy, but he cannot cause you to fall into sin so as to be lost forever, okay? Listen, I want to be clear. Satan operates, he does, under God's sovereign control. And he cannot do anything to you unless God sovereignly allows it. You belong to God. You are God's. I I like how Hebert said it, one of my favorite commentators. He said that Satan will assail the believer 
but his slimy fingers will never again regain an abiding grip on the redeemed soul. He said that his attacks may be vicious. They may inspire fear, but the promise is that he will never destroy the true child of God. End of quotes. So listen, you have not only been born again, you will never live in a pattern of ongoing sin. Why? Because Christ himself keeps you and the evil one cannot lay hold of you. Let me take you to the fourth of five certainties. There's another one that he gives. And I'll just call it our attitude in the world. Our attitude in the world. And, and he deals with how do we live in this place? Well, look back in 1 John And it's stated there in verse 19. 519 says this, We know that we are from God. And then this comparison. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But he first says here that we are from God. And I think John here, again, back to that Gnostic heresy, is kind of coming at us and saying whatever the false teachers may say, we are from God. He is the source of our life. We belong to him. We are his family. We are back, at least in 3-1, born of God. And you say, well, in that phrase, we are from God, how do you know who's from God? Have you ever wondered that? How do you know if your family members are in Christ? How do you know if your extended family, your cousins, your, those in your own family are from God? Well, that's been the argument of the whole book. And remember, 1 John provided three tests that, that would point the way forward. And remember, those tests were, there's a doctrinal test, there's a moral test, and there's a relational test. The doctrinal test, here's how you know you're from God. Do you affirm Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? Do you affirm that God the Father sent God the Son? Do you affirm Jesus is God in the flesh? Do you affirm that he died on the cross? All the teaching in 1 John. That's a doctrinal test, but then he didn't leave it just there. He gave us a moral test. If you really know God, you're going to obey his commandments. If you really know him and love him, then the pattern and the pursuit of your life is going to be one of righteousness. You're going to live in a way that would honor God. And then the last test was the relational test. The relational test is, do you love the people of God? And so he gave those tests. And so when he says to us, look again in verse 19, We know that we are from God. As you look at those tests that he's given us, you begin to understand who's from God and who's not. Look back just for a moment at chapter 3 in verse 10. Do you remember? He's so clear there, and I suppose this is the moral test as well as the relational test. But he said, actually 3.9, no one who is born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. How so, John? He says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor does the one who does not love his brother. So he just simply, he's just repeating that theme. We are from God. We, the people of God, do God's will as a lifestyle. We, the people of God, experience God's fellowship with one another. We are from God. And because of this transformation, we live differently from the world. But not everyone is from God. In fact, look back at 1 John now, chapter 5, verse 19. He says, we're from God. He says, but the whole world in 519 lies, interesting, in the power of the evil one. Stop there just for a second. He speaks there of the world lying in the power. The idea here in the language is that the world that you live in, that I live in, is under the sway, is the thought, is under the sway of the evil one. Now, we know from the scripture that Satan, according to John 14, 30, is the ruler of this, what, world, right? He is also called in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this age. We know from Genesis 3 that he is the father of lies. We know from 1 Peter chapter 5 that he is a lion 
that devours. So watch this in comparison. The evil one cannot touch us, but literally the whole world lies in the grasp of the evil one. In in fact, that phrase, lies in the power of the evil one, is used of a baby being cradled to sleep in someone's lap or a stranded ship that would would kind of lie, if you will, embedded in the sand. In other words, I take it that this world is not even under siege by Satan. He's already got it. He's already got it. So listen, you know why we're doing the Burger Bash today? We care immensely about our students. Because we know that there's a, there's a world out there. It's not like he's got to go on the front attack. He, he's already rocking them like a baby. The ship's already embedded in the sand. It hardly struggles against him. The world, if you will, rests in Satan's arms. And as you look back in the, theology, when the human race fell into sin through Adam and Eve, it fell out of the embrace of God and into the embrace of the devil. And since then, the world listens carefully to its seducer, carefully to its comforter, carefully to its guide, who is Satan. And so if I put it bluntly, don't mean to rock you, but Satan is the world's pastor, okay? His views are broadcast from the pulpit of the nightly news, in the newspaper, on the radio, in the internet, and in every form of entertainment every day. There is nothing in the system of the world that does not lie in the lap of Satan. Remember John said earlier in chapter 2, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the what? The world, and we begin, you know, we already talked about the nuances of the world and what the world means in creation, what the world means in people, but here, cosmos meant an evil system. So, maybe just a word here, this is just off my notes altogether. When you begin to watch the nightly news, don't be too surprised. When you begin to watch America go like this, Don't be too surprised. Now, it doesn't mean we can't fight against it, but the world, the cosmos, that word here is a spiritual system of evil. And it is a system that is contrary to God. It is a world that is in rebellion to God. It is associated in the scripture with darkness, and it is Satan's system that opposes Christ and opposes God, and it is anti-God and anti-Christ. In fact, the world is a comprehensive term for all those who are in the domain of darkness who have not been born again. And the world here in our text, and the body of believers are in absolute contrast to one another. The world and unbelievers are under Satan, but we are born of God. You know, one great Puritan, Horatius Bonner, in his book, Christian Treasury, asked the question, why not love the world? Why not love the world? And and we don't love the world. That's why he's saying our attitude here in the world is different. Why? Because we're born of God. But the whole world lies in the lap. He says, why not love the world? He cited this and with a number of scriptures. I don't mean to go in depth on it. He said, because the gain of it, the world, is the loss of your soul. Man, go, go preach that. I popped onto something on an internet this week as I was looking at Yahoo Sports, and it had the men who make the most money in sports. And at the top of it, you see that one? Was money. That's what they call them. Money. Parker, do you know who money is? You don't because you're a farmer, and that's good. I'm glad you don't know who money is. You say, why did I call him Parker? I don't know, just for fun. I like Parker. And uh, money is Floyd Mayweather. He made about $90 million last year. But listen, you can't take it with you, can you? You can gain it. 
but you'll forfeit your soul if you're not careful. And then down the list went of all the big uh, sports entertainers with LeBron and Kobe. Listen, you can gain it, but you could lose your soul. And so we're not to love the world. Here, secondly, because it's friendship, according to James 4.4, is hatred towards God. Because the world, in John 1.10, did not know Christ. In fact, the world, in the Scripture, according to John 7.7, hates Christ. And because, I would say, we're not to love the world because 1 John 2.15 forbids us to love the world. Do not love the world nor the things in the world, right? In fact, it's interesting, in John 17, 9, Christ did not pray for the world. He prayed for you. In fact, in John 17, 16, Christ's people do not belong to it. He said that. You don't belong to the world. In fact, we don't love the world because John 13, 31 says, its prince is Satan. John 18, 36, because it says, because Christ's kingdom is not of it. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.20, because its wisdom is foolishness. 1.21, that its wisdom is also ignorance. Because here's another reason not to love it, because Christ does not belong to it. I just had a guy call me this week. This is random, but it's a friend of mine, not from here. And he told me about somebody who, in the midst of divorce proceedings, went to Las Vegas. I just thought to myself, if you love Christ, and I'm not trying to be legalistic, would that be the last place you'd want to go as a single guy? In fact, it made me think, what in the world does he want to go there for? Now, if you're driving through somewhere on the way to Lake Powell and you stop in there, okay, I, you know, you, but I'm talking about going there. I mean, what are you, you going to do there? I just, I thought, man, this guy is a, calls himself a believer, but listen, Christ didn't belong to it. We don't want to belong to it. 1 Corinthians 11.32 says the world is condemned. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7.31 that its present form will pass away. It slew Christ, the world, in Matthew 21, 39. Galatians 6, 14 says we are crucified to it. So you, you hear, we don't love it, right? So here's our attitude in the world is different because we're born of God. I pr- praise God for that, right? Look back at 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. It says there clearly, and just touching on it, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not, what? Know Him. I I really try to encourage you, don't be so surprised. Look over at 1 John 3.13, remember that there? Do not be surprised, brothers, I could say sisters, that the world, what? hate you. Glance down in chapter 4, verse 5. They, the ones who have left us, are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world, what? Listens to them. Verse 6, we are from, what? God. Maybe not enough time here to go to John 15, but I'm, I'm thinking of that text. Jesus said, just listen to it. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will also what? Persecute you. Listen, don't fall in love with the world. That's why when I think of our student ministries as we move forward here, I'm thinking, man, we're in a battle. We're in an all-out battle for ideology and worldview. And it's going to be pumped down them Likely in the wrong way. And so we need to be there, do we not, as a, as, a, as a stopgap and a measure to preach and to look at the Scripture. Why do you think we're looking at the Scripture today? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm laughing with you. I mean, 
we're going to be in the Scripture because we want to build you up and we want to know, I want to know what the Word of God says. And remember, I'm preaching to my own heart too, and so I feel like I'm, I'm leaving a friend today. I kind of took some of my books on First John and I'm closing them up, and it's sad, but I, I, I want his heart in this, right? I'm thinking of what Jesus said when he said to the Father, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, John 17, just as I am not of the world. Think just for a moment to some of you, well, any of you in Christ if you came to Christ later. Remember what your life was before Christ? When Paul said in Ephesians 2 that you walked according to the course of this, what? world. You just, you're in the world. I was in the world until I was 14. I mean, I'm just loving the world. I don't want to obey Christ. In fact, now we're different, right? Ephesians 6, 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers um, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Wow. So what is the world, though? I mean, we're, we're looking at that. There, you can see it again in verse 19 when it says the world lies. What is the world? Well, one described it this way. Is human nature sacrificing the spiritual to the material? That's the world. It is sacrificing the future to the present. This is all that matters. It is sacrificing the unseen to that which is eternal and that which touches the senses and perishes with time. And so Jesus said, we are chosen out of the world, and we no longer belong to it, but you know that we still live in it, but we're distinct from it. And so do we not. We live in this tension. We are to be separate from the world, but we still live in it, but we can't love it. We cannot escape from it. We are to remain in it, and we have to live within it, without becoming like it. And so that's our attitude in the world. And I'm thinking of Paul in Galatians 6.14. The world has been crucified to me and I to the what? To the world. We are dead to the world. Do you remember when, you certainly do, when Paul pleaded in Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this what? World. Don't be squeezed into its mold. And so listen, if, if some of you, if you look where our country is going, I'm not trying to be bleak. There's, a, there's encouraging things. You're encouraging. Believers are encouraging. Grace Church of the Valley is encouraging. Your little children in the classrooms over there is encouraging. The Word of God, praise God, that's encouraging. The fact that we've got eternal life, but we ever have to remember, you cannot be the word conformed there um, the Greek word means to be squeezed into its mold. So Paul just says, listen, do not be conformed to its mold. You, you've got to, but how do you not be conformed? But be renewed by the, what? Spirit of your mind, right? Be renewed in your mind. So our attitude in the world is we are ambassadors in the world, but not its citizens and we are not on Satan's leash or under his control. Praise God. That's our certainty of our attitude in the world. And then finally, look, just maybe the most exciting, our certainty of our absolute Savior. Our absolute Savior. It's really, it's, it's precise in its wording. Look at it in verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come, and he's given us understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Here is the certainty of our absolute Savior. Now you'll note there in verse 20, again, the authorities in the word, look at it, opening phrase, we know that the Son of God has come. Stop there just for a second. You know he's after the Gnostics. I think John, I, when I meet John, I, I want to ask him if, if like he's being sarcastic there or just true or both. Because when he says we know that the Son of God has come, he's totally taking a shot at the Gnostics there. He, in other words, he's come, Christ. He's appeared, if you will. It is the appearance 
of the invisible God in human form in Christ. And of course, the Gnostics denied that reality. They denied that he was the son that came in the flesh. And we've looked at that argument, but John closes his book and says this in 20, that he's, he's come. And, and would you note what he's come to do? Look at verse 20 again. He has come and given us, what does it say? Understanding. Now, now, great line. It's, it's the Word of God. He's given us, Christ come, He's appeared, and He's given you as His believer understanding. Now, it's not the only thing that He's given us. Just remember, look back at 3.1. He's given a lot of gifts. He's the greatest birthday giver of gift. Remember this in 3.1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so there, see, it says there, what kind of love the Father, He's given love to us. He calls us His children. There's something else He's given. Look at 324. I'm just touching on it. Whoever keeps the commandments abides in God, and God abides in him. In 324, it says, by this we know He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has, what? given us. I'm just highlighting a few. He's given us the love of God. He's given us, praise God, His Holy Spirit. But look what else He's given. Go over the next page to chapter 5, verse 11, where it says in 5.11, this is the testimony that God gave us, what? Eternal life, and this life is in His Son, so He gives us His love. He gives us His Spirit. He gives us uh, eternal life. Wow. And now this, look at it again in verse 20, that he's come and he's given us understanding. You say, what is that? It's spiritual and intellectual capacity to receive the truth about God and Christ. And so if you're in here, he's given you certainty of the absoluteness of our Savior. And again, I think he's taken a shot at the Gnostics who prided themselves on knowledge. We're the secret people with the secret handshake, with the secret understanding, with the secret spirit. John says, no way. He says, he's come in verse 20 and has given you, his children, understanding. Now, specifically, he's given you two things in that understanding. Look at the text in verse 20. He says, first... He gives intimate relationship. Verse 20 says, so that, we just call that a purpose clause, that we may know him who is true. In other words, he came that we would know him who is true, God. (laughs) He came to bring us into an intimate relationship with God. In other words, you would never know God if Christ had not come. And again, the Gnostics claimed to have special knowledge. They're dead wrong, okay? He says, apart from Christ, there is no knowledge of God. And Christ came to give you understanding, verse 20, so that you may know him who is true. It is only through Christ that we can really know the real God. That's pretty absolute, isn't it? There's not many different ways to God. There's one, and it's through Christ. It says in Luke 10, no one can know It says, no one can know who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal himself. And so we've come into an intimate knowledge. Now, look at that word just for a second. I don't want to get too technical here, but how do you explain the text, which is all we really want to know? Do you see when it says there in verse 20, so that we may, do you see that word there, know him who is true? I think it's interesting. Well, you say, well, why would it be interesting? Look back in 18. He says, we know that everyone has been born of God. Look at verse 19. We know that we are from God. Look at the beginning of verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come. But he uses a different word here for know him. You say, well, Scott, it's the word know in 18, know in 19, know at the beginning of 20, and know in the middle of 20. I know that, and you can see that. But they're different Greek words, which is pretty fascinating to me. So it's just a little nuance here. In the opening phrases, when he says in 18, 19, in the first phrase of 20, he says to know, and he uses the Greek word oida. And it just means to know factually. 
In other words, we continually, present tense, know those things in 18, 19, and 20 as a fact. But the Greek word in, in the middle of 20 is different. And it, John changes it from oida to just another Greek word called gnosko. Don't let that throw you off because love, you know, has different shades of meanings. If it's agape love, if it's phileo love, if it's eros love, here's no, it's just different. It's oida. But in the middle of 20, it's gnosko. You say, what does that mean? Well, look at it again in 20, that we may know him, gnosko, that we may know him experientially is the thought, that we may know God relationally, that we may know God personally is the thought. In other words, oida is more the facts that we know to be true, but this is an intimate knowledge here. Not just the facts. You know the person. Not merely understanding a religion, but experiencing a relationship. That's what he's talking about. In fact, look at verse 20 again. That We know him who is true. And he says that three times in verse 20. God is true. God is true. God is true. Literally, he's the true one. Listen, I'm certain about that, aren't you? This is not my word. This is the word of God. I'm certain about that. Why? Because it's witnessed in the Holy Spirit. He's given us understanding. He's given us an understanding of this. We know him who is true. And when you see that phrase there, that we know him who is true, it's always we know the true one as opposed to the false. In other words, you know the real God, not some idol in man's imagination. You get it a little bit at the end of 21 why he says, keep yourselves from idol. You know the true one. Therefore, children of God, keep yourselves from him. Now, now look again at verse 20. It says that you may know him who is true. And then look what it says there. And we are in him who is true. And he's speaking there of that relationship, of that union, that we are in him. You are in God. You are in Christ. The, he, he dwells in you, God the Father and God the Son, and you dwell in him. Look back just for a moment at 2.24. He's been saying this all along. Speaking of this intimate relationship, remember in 2.24 where he said there, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. He's talking about the mutual indwelling of believers in the Father and the Son. Look over at chapter 3 and verse 24, where it says, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And we know that he abides in us by the Spirit that he has given to us. Look down at chapter 4, verse 2. By this we know the Spirit of God, that every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And so we, we know him. So to abide in God and to abide in Christ are the same thing. We abide in him and he in us. We are joined to him. What, what does that mean? We experience personal relationship with the living God through His Son, Jesus Christ. So, beloved, simply the gospel, Jesus came, and by His incarnation, and by His sinless life, and by His atoning death, and by His resurrection, He has brought us into a relationship with the one true God through faith. I mean, can you believe that? Think about that. A relationship with the living God? I sometimes still remember when my... Little, when my son, Johnny, who was playing up here, I think I told you that story before. When he met Shaq, I took him into the Laker locker room because I had a friend that played, and Shaq came out, and, and um, just the, the biggest guy I've ever seen in my life, and just massive. And I just remember the car ride home. Johnny, he was a young guy. He's about eight. Where's Johnny? He's, he's probably in, there you are. You remember that? Remember that? You were staring. Remember I told you the story he had his shoes and he wouldn't look up to meet him because Shaq had size 23 shoes. And I'm like, Johnny, I had to hit him to look up. Dad, his shoes are this big. And, and uh, size 23, the guy's just, how's it going, John? You know how Shaq talks. Woo, how old are you, John? You know, and so, John, so John's driving home and we're driving home in my little Hyundai. 
That was so fun. John, I'm glad you had fun because that will never happen again in your life. And he just says, man, I can't believe it, Dad. I met Kobe. Kobe signed something. I met Shaq. And he's down the list. I said, but Johnny, the greatest thrill of all is that you know God, right? I mean, think about that. We here have a personal relationship with God. And look at it in verse 20. We know him who is true. And then it says, and in his son, Jesus Christ. But, but watch this in verse 20. It says, we are in him who is true. And then watch this. In his son, Jesus Christ. And then this unbelievable phrase, he, and I think antecedent back to Christ, not the God. He is the true God and eternal life. I believe, Grace Church, that verse 20 is one of, if not, the greatest declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. I mean, what greater commendation can be made? Jesus Christ, look at it, is the true God and he's eternal life. Amazing. And listen, because he's God, he can give us God's life, which is eternal. We're forgiven all of our sins. We're made ready for heaven. We're transformed from inside out and given a totally new body and spirit in the future because Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And so he just closes and he says, verse 21, little children, keep yourself from idols. Now you say, well, what are the idols here? Well, he doesn't say, does he? Look at it. Keep yourself from idols. John, who, maybe we can ask him, who are the idols? But I just think if you t- interpret it in the context, an idol, you know this is anything that takes place, if you will, do only to God himself. Anything that, that takes the place of God himself. And, and John here contrasts the true God, Jesus Christ, with the silly idols. And again, do not merely see this phrase as some wooden figurine. You know that. He is referring, I think, in the context to the false teachers, the Gnostics that he addressed throughout his epistle. An idol is not merely a little plastic figurine or image that you reverence. An idol is, is it not? It's just simply an incorrect view of God. It's an incorrect view of Christ. It's anything that would diminish the supreme majesty of Christ as Lord or deny the sufficiency of his atonement, his death, and his resurrection. That's why, remember when Paul said something like this in 3.5, put to death, therefore what is earthly in you? And he named them this way, not figurines. He said sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which he said is idolatry. Those are just sinful sexual acts, which are idolatry. And so listen, we've been given these certainties. Amen. You have the certainty of your assurance of eternal life. You have the certainty of going forward that you can approach God in confidence with prayer. You have the certainty of your advantage over sin. You've been born of God. Your advantage over Satan. You have the certainty of your attitude in the world. We're not to love it. And you've been given the certainty of an absolute Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Amen.